Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with David Giffels. Giffels has written the book, The Hard Way on Purpose, Essays and Dispatches from the Rust Belt. Giffels, who has grown up and lived his entire life in Akron, Ohio, writes about the city's despair and destruction as the rubber city moved away, as well as Akron's resurgence in recent years. He writes about bowling, rock and roll, thrift stores, and sports in a smart and funny way. Giffels was once a reporter and columnist at the Akron Beacon Journal. Now he is an assistant professor of English at the University of Akron. He's written another book, too, titled All the Way Home, which won the Ohioana Book Award. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, the Beacon Journal, Grantland, and many other publications. David, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Can we start things off with you reading a short section from your book, The Hard Way on Purpose? Sure. This is um, very early in the first chapter of the book. I have spent my whole life watching people leave. This is a defining characteristic of the generation of post-industrial Midwesterners who have stayed in their hometowns. At every stage of opportunity, at every life crossroads, friends and family members and enemies and old lovers and vaguely familiar barflies depart. Piles of demographic and sociological data chronicle this, the term brain drain serving as a sort of catamaran counterpart to Rust Belt. Akron's population peaked the decade I was born and has dramatically fallen every decade since, from 290,000 in 1960 to 199,000 in 2010. High school graduation, college graduation, career opportunity, layoff, coming of age, crisis of confidence, marriage, divorce. The conditioned, perhaps prescribed response is to go somewhere else. They all leave. A conversational quirk exists among natives of this region. Whenever we hear people say they've moved here from somewhere else, we instinctively respond, why? Uh, I love this book. Um, I, I think I told you when we first started talking about having you as a guest that I also have pretty much a lifelong, uh, with the exception of about three years, resident of Northeast Ohio. Um, I grew up maybe about 40 minutes away from where you grew up, uh, a little bit south of Akron. Um, and one of the things that I think is so great about this book is you really nail the place uh, of what Akron and what Northeast Ohio is like. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how you go about doing that in a book? Yeah, well, thanks, first of all. Um, but, I mean, in this case, it wasn't like I set out to understand a place and then write about it. I've lived here, you know, this all this time, and I was a newspaper columnist at the local newspaper for um, for a number of years. So these are thoughts and ideas and images and philosophies that have been um, kind of generating and moving around in my brain for a long time. And this was an opportunity to put all of that 
into some sort of context. Um, so, um, so it's a little bit different than you know a travel writer, for instance, who goes somewhere to understand a place. And um, this is more like writing about your family in some way that would make sense to somebody who had never met them. Mm-hmm. What uh, can you talk a little bit about the book and like what readers could expect if they were to pick it up? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very specific and in some ways very personal account of growing up as a member of the first generation of the industrial Midwest to only know it as the post-industrial Midwest, to never have known what factories smelled like when they were active factories, but to have been surrounded by abandoned factories and and seen them as abandoned places. Um, and so while it's specifically about Akron, Ohio and my life in Akron, Ohio, it's written, I wrote it with a very strong instinct to tr- try to project it outward so that it's reflective of the experience of people in other places like this. And in fact, um, I just did an interview with the Buffalo News, which had it has a monthly book club, and they picked this for their January book club. And we had this great conversation, the, the reporter and I, about like comparing our versions of specific aspects of our life here. So like, you know, like, what is Akron's version of the buffalo chicken wing and this understanding that how important it is to have those iconic quirks that people outside of your place can recognize because we feel anonymous when we live in places that have been in some ways forgotten and abandoned and we cling to these touchstones. So, you know, LeBron James is to Akron what the buffalo chicken wing is to, to Buffalo, New York or something like that. I'm sure he'd love to know that. Right. I was going to ask you, um, the book starts with a piece that essentially centers around LeBron uh, James and the decision and everything that happened that kind of spun out of that and and your experience as a reporter encountering him as a high schooler. What, why, why did, why lead with that piece? Um, in, in part because it's, it's one of the things that does open up the book um, in some ways more universally because because LeBron James is universal but he's also has a unique place in Akron and I think there is this con- this tension um, in places that have become misunderstood I mean Detroit even you know for all the universality that Detroit seems to embody it's really misunderstood right now and so, you know, there's, um, I, I bring up the, the Who's down in Whoville trying to be heard, I think is um, something that a lot of these cities and a lot of these places share. And so to open with the essay about LeBron James and say, the world understands LeBron James one way and we understand him a different way um, was what I was trying to do. The, the chance happening is that the book came out in March of this year and LeBron announced in July that he was coming back home and so that whole theme kind of took on you know kind of its its next level of meaning at the same time as the book was still kind of in play and you were able to incorporate that right that that he was coming back as i recall or no no actually so he he left in 2010 i wrote that essay in 2012 um, you know, and and really, like the heart of that essay is the fact that no, I don't think any American athlete has been so tied to the narrative of his or her hometown as LeBron James. 
Um, and the book came out in March at a time when his free agency was very much in question what would happen. Um, and so I didn't know. You know, I thought either I will look like a prophet or a complete fool. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I came out as either somewhere in the middle. <laughs> right. Were you surprised? I mean, this is kind of not about the book, but were you, you weren't surprised that he came back, well, right? Well, it kind of is about the book because what what I was surprised by was that he didn't just come back. He wrote his own personal essay about what home means to him. He didn't say, I'm making a decision. You know, athletes always say, I'm making the best decision for my family or what, what's best for my career. He said, I'm doing this for you, my hometown, in a lot of ways. To me, um, he added to the narrative um, and, you know, in literally and figuratively in a way that made it really interesting to me. Did you did you when you read his piece that Sports Illustrated um, put online when his his decision 2.0 or whatever did you did you do you feel like you were able to get that in a way that maybe other people or maybe I mean people that aren't from Akron did you get it and do you feel like you were able to understand that in a way that other people wouldn't be able to Well first of all you know I mean he he wrote it with Lee Jenkins from Sports Illustrated, who's a very good writer, but it's clear to me that this this is his words. Somebody helped him craft it, maybe, but um, it's a very sincere, direct message. And so my, you know, I got goosebumps and choked up when I when, when I very first read it. And a lot of people around the country said the same thing that they felt like a real sincerity in that. So I think people got it in a way that they were that that's this was a new thing for an athlete to be saying or something different than the usual message so I th- but I do think that people in Akron Ohio and Cleveland Ohio specifically hear a resonance in those words that's that only we can understand because we come from a certain kind of hard times that LeBron James comes from and when he says I know what your hard times feel like it's not lip service we know that that's true and we know that at some point, only those who've lived through those specific hard times can really know what it means. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit ago that you just uh, did an interview uh, with the Buffalo uh, newspaper mm-hmm. um, because they're they're u- using your book as uh, as as a book club. Can you talk about how the the book resonates with like other cities and you know across the country? Because I know you know it's a book about Akron, but how you know, why do people, why would anybody else outside of Akron care about Akron? Yeah, I mean, that that was always my um, concern and tension in writing and, and in preparing for the release of the book was that I didn't want this to seem like it was an enclosed um, piece of writing, but that it was like the, the beginning point of certain kinds of things. And I did a ton of touring and a ton of interviewing on the book. I mean, basically, the whole spring and summer was spent talking to people in other places. And for the most part, there was a combination of an understanding, especially in the Midwest and and in industrial places, a, a recognition that this is a, these are themes that play in other places, and also like a sincere curiosity. Like, you know, like one of the very first pieces was with with NPR. So it was a conversation for a national audience. um, And but but there seemed to be a sincere interest in understanding a place that I think NPR understands is often, you know, sort of stereotyped or, or easily maligned. You know, NPR 
I think sees Ohio as a really good place to go every four years when Ohio is going to decide who gets to be president. And so, you know, to have a conversation that was much more nuanced Mm -hmm. was interesting to me. Right. And you have um, you have some pieces in there regarding elections in Ohio and how kind of Ohio is, you know, every four years we get we get paid attention to. Um, Was that important for you to include that kind of that kind of narrative within the story? Oh, yeah, because I think there's like a, a like I think. You know, in some ways, Ohio is is shorthand for the most quintessentially American kind of place. You know, it's in the middle of the country, but people on the coast don't know exactly where in the middle it is. It's just sort of in that middle, and um, and it's and it's you know the reason, in some ways, that Ohio is a bellwether or a swing state is because it does. There are a lot of intersections of like middle class life here that are representational of w- what the national picture is. In the 90s, the New York Times sent a writer named Michael Weinrip. Um, they, they did all this number crunching and, and matrices and all this to try to figure out the most American place in America. And they, de- they decided on Canton, Ohio, which is 30 minutes south of Akron. Um, and they sent Michael Weinrip and his family to live there for a year as Cantonites. And Cantonians, I don't even, <laughs> um, but this idea that Ohio somehow embodies uh, a, a quintessential Americanness, I think, I find it interesting, and I also you know bristle against it because it's then it becomes we sort of become this like sort of you know the Simpsons live in this place called Springfield that seems like every place but is really no place, you know, and you don't want to be that you want to be unique and you want to be the way you understand yourself to be, which is with all your quirks and specificities and not some sort of bland representation, you know, of something that's not real. Right, right. Um, Can you talk about the writing process for these pieces? Had these pieces all been kind of percolating over the years or um, were they pieces that you had published before and culminated into, you know, you pulled into a book? Can you talk about that process? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of books of essays are are compilations of, you know, the work that's been done over the past certain number of years. But in this case, except for a couple of specific cases, everything was written for this project. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, the book went through some like seriously different drafts and permutations. At one point, it was uh, working as a narrative memoir. um, And some aspects of that still stay, still are here in this version of the book. But Ultimately, um, my editor and I decided we wanted it as a book of essays, and so, so it was all written for this project, um, except for a couple of pieces, previously published pieces, mm-hmm. just two, um, that I pulled in because they fit directly into it, and then those were substantially rewritten. Um, but it was, yeah, it's meant to be a, of a single piece and of a single time mm-hmm. as well. But what what was that like to? I know you said it started out as possibly a narrative memoir, but then it kind of moved. Like in terms of, there's a lot of stuff covered, and all mm-hmm. in the essay form. And in the essay form, you kind of have these, um, the structure you kind of got to follow through. Um, was that was that hard for you to do, or no, or being no? Because what was happening when I was trying to write it as a narrative was that I was finding that that the the one main weakness is that my the through line of my life is not very interesting um, but all the little landmarks along the way were very interesting i'm like well what if we just take out the through line of my boring life and so 
and so a lot of those pieces had been written more like as scenes or you know and things like for instance there's a a chapter in there that's about um thrift store culture originally that was a scene it was like a, a stepping stone uh, along the way of a of a storyline that was playing out that didn't that didn't play out but i had this stuff from this trip to a thrift store that opened up this whole theme of what thrift store culture means in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the pieces in here went from being more like um, anecdotal or, or sort of plot-driven um, episodes that then sort of served as the shell for th themes, mm -hmm. for thematic stuff. So a lot of the book is a lot of the is, essays are thematic, but they have kind of like s sort of some of the shell of that narrative that was originally part of the process. Mm -hmm. And and you've got the book broken up into four parts. Um, can you talk about those four parts and why those four parts? Yeah, I'm going to have to open up the table of contents to even remember exactly what they're. The first the first is um, you know the first part is called the heart of the heart of it all, and the idea was I wanted to really establish place and what this place feels like and means so and and the specific tenets of place that I thought represented you know helped form that so there's sports which are very central to life in Northeast Ohio weather with you know is a specific um, part of living near the shore of Lake Erie in in the snow belt um, and you know, and and just the sense of what life in a post-industrial city looks and feels like. Um, and then the second part is more like, um, I guess, sort of the early coming of age, mm -hmm. kind of coming to an understanding of a place as a young person when that place is in a state of sudden, dramatic, and sometimes traumatic change. Um, and then the third section, which is called Local Men, is actually, in my mind, works almost like a, a four-chapter novella mm -hmm. about my friend John and I um, really, like, coming to, like, as young people, um, an ownership of the place that nobody really wanted. Um, so we both went to college at the University of Akron together um, and started to discover the city together just as it was being, the, the central city was being abandoned by... Mm -hmm you know, what had been the prevailing culture, the banks and the um, big department stores and the institutions of downtown were really just, you know, like had been suburbanized. And so this rediscovery of a place at its moment of transition. And then the fourth part of the book is kind of bringing it up to the present. Where are we now? What's, what's it all mean now? And, and I think a little bit about where it's headed. Do you have a favorite piece in the book? Um, not, I wouldn't say I do. Uh, it's funny, you know, like when you write a book or when I write a book, I don't read it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you know, like I haven't read this book since, <laughs> since it was accepted by a publisher, but, but you do readings. So mm -hmm. you pick out pieces that, you know, that you like to do why. So I like, there are pieces that I really like to lead to, to read because I, I think they work well in that context, but then, you know, like, I, I still, I mean, I guess if I was going to say my favorite might be that first chapter about LeBron James, just because 
it changed. Like it, I wrote it, like I said, right in the middle of its own narrative mm-hmm. after he had left, while he was gone, just as he was winning his first championship in Miami. And then he changed the narrative because after the book came out. So I just like it in that way because it makes, I like the idea of stories not being static and once they go into a book, but actually continuing to have some kind of life. Um, and so that one definitely did. Right. Uh, is there a piece that you've noticed that people, um, when you go to on readings and that uh, you do readings, um, is there a piece that people kind of um, uh, like really connect with uh, and talk about, you know, I really like this piece? Yeah, not really that they really like it, but there's one that keeps coming up and it's weird because it probably is my least favorite piece in the book. <laughs> like there's a chapter that I wrote. It's the last chapter I wrote, I think, um, near the end that needed to kind of take care of some loose ends or, or pick up. And to me, it seems almost like a little bit pedantic or pedestrian. Like I just needed to say some things about how um, this part of the country is perceived. Mm-hmm. And yet that's the one um, that has come up the most often in interviews and in conversations at readings and so forth. Um, and specifically a passage in there where I say something to the effect of that I sometimes resent people who leave and come back because they 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 will sometimes come back and say, you know, like take ownership of your pain. And, you know, for someone who's stuck it out here for my whole life, it's like, wait a minute, if I don't get to own that pain exclusively, then I've got nothing. <laughs> and so I think some people who have moved and come back have bristled at that or people who've moved away suggested that or have felt like I was maybe looking down on them, which maybe I was, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, that one's been kind of interesting because I didn't expect it to be, you know, to take on a life of its own that way, but it definitely has. Right. That's funny because I, I moved away from Northeast Ohio and then I came back, but I kind of, I think I got what you were saying. Like, I feel like you do have more ownership of it. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite interviews I did was, it was with an NPR show um, but the host was, this is a national NPR show, but the host happened to be from Warren, Ohio. And we kind of got into it, like in a really fun, but also kind of like charged way. Because mm-hmm. he's like, man, I go back if I have to for a funeral or a wedding, but I feel like I have to like go through, you know, like be repatriated to where I live now. Just, to, you know, take a shower basically after he comes. But he hates it here. And so we had a really fun exchange, but but there was also had some teeth because mm-hmm. you know I was fighting the good fight for right. my people, and he was fighting the bad fight <laughs> against us. What's been the feedback, especially in Akron? Um, well, in Akron, um, you know, I, the, the, it's really like it's been it had a really strong mm-hmm. positive response because it's places that people recognize you know like when I worked for a newspaper and I know you've worked for newspapers there's this um, mantra people want to read about people like who are like them mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that we are we find warming about the local newspaper is that we understand each other and so you know so when there's a book that people recognize themselves in I think they um, they respond strongly to it mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and but also you know weirdly three books this year came out um, by Akron writers that that were about Akron all very different from one another. So um, 
so it just feels like there's this little moment of I don't know what it means, but it was kind of fun to kind of talk to the other writers about what it's like to write about this place. Right, right. What were those? What were those books? Um, the other one is it's kind of a picture book, kind of collagey kind of book called um, I think it's Akron A to Z, and it actually goes through the letters of alphabet. A, a is for the Akron Art Museum. B, so it's it's kind of a just sort of a um, snapshot kind of, but really, you know, visual book. And then the other one, which I can't think of the title of, but it was um, uh, written by a former deputy mayor, and it's kind of about um, Akron's um, industries and business. It's it's kind of a Chamber of Commerce piece. I mean, in fact, it was it was commissioned by the Chamber of Commerce, but it's um, solidly written and and a good piece of. Um, kind of where we are kind of writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back uh, in just a minute with more from David Giffels, uh, our author of The Hard Way on Purpose. This is Gangry the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash jdm. This is Matt Tullis, and we're back on Gangry the Podcast with David Giffels. Giffels wrote the book The Hard Way on Purpose, which is a collection of essays that examine the wreckage and resurgence of the Rust Belt, primarily through the lens of Akron. Uh, David, you started out as a reporter uh, at the Beacon Journal, which is in Akron. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and kind of what it was like to be a reporter in your hometown newspaper? Yeah, um, it was great. I mean, I, um, I I never intended to have a journalism career, and it really happened more or less by accident. Um, but once I started, I started out by writing for a small-town newspaper, the Medina County Gazette, um, not far from Akron, about 40 minutes away. And once I was, once I decided I, I liked journalism, my only goal at that point was to write for my hometown newspaper. Because I think there's something um, a really rewarding and um, enlightening about writing about the place that you associate very strongly with as your home. Um, and so when I got to do that, it was really great to be able to learn so much more about its past and its its cultural past, its historical past, its economic past, and um, because when you understand your place, you understand yourself, and so you know it was a lot of fun. And then it's you know like it's just kind of fun to be writing for the paper that you grew up learning. I learned how to read by reading the Akron Beacon Journal, and then to know that I'm writing for it was really neat for me. I loved it. 
did you um you said you didn't intend you went to the university of akron did you ever uh and think about going elsewhere or was it university of akron all the way and then once you were there what were you kind of studying that type of well, you, you implied that I thought <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't real. Like I didn't really have a plan, you know, like, like my, you know, my daughter right now is in high school and she's, you know, she's looking at colleges and she's knows what she wants to do. And I, from the time I learned how to read, I always said I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a little kid, like I was always very, very sure that's what I wanted to do. And the farther I got along in college, the more I was certain I wanted to be a writer, but the less I understood what that meant. Because it starts, especially when you're, you know, in a career-oriented environment like a college, um, you know, it, that's like saying I would learn how to become invisible. You know, when somebody else is going to be an accountant and someone's going to be a nurse. And, um, and so... By the time I got to the end of my undergraduate work, the only goal, the only career goal I had was not to write for a newspaper. I knew I wanted to be a writer and I knew I didn't want to write for a newspaper. So I did the next logical thing is went to graduate school and studied creative writing and I got to the end and still had just one career goal, which is not to write for a newspaper. And then a week later, I started writing for a newspaper and then I did that for 18 years. So... Yeah, so um, so I didn't really like sort of consciously set out to chart my course, um, but I was ambitious. I mean, I wanted to do a lot of there was a lot of things I wanted to do as a writer that, as much as I loved journalism, I, I wasn't fulfilled by. So I was doing a lot of you know, the, I mean, the books, some the books I wrote up before this book were all done in addition to my other work and set and other kinds of writing that I did. For other contexts, so um, my ambition kind of eventually found its way, but it wasn't there at the beginning. Right. Uh, when uh, what type of uh, what type of stuff did you uh, you do uh, when you first started at the Beacon Journal? <laughs> my my first job at the Akron Beacon Journal, I got hired away from you know a full time more than full time job at the Medina paper. I was hired part time as the society writer. Um, so, because that was the job that was open. Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of like, um, and they wanted to hire me. So it was just kind of a way to get me in. And then, um, and then I started, you know, like quickly became a feature writer. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did mostly features. Um, and then I started doing longer form features for the Sunday magazine and, some other big projects. And so I was doing stuff that really, you know, was great to be able to sink your teeth into big, long-term, long-form journalism projects, mm-hmm. which I did a lot of. Um, and then I became a columnist, um, a Metro columnist, which I did for about close to the last 10 years that I was there. Mm-hmm. Did, and did, um, did have, having that graduate uh, study in creative writing, how did that help you or did it hurt oh. you? It helped a lot. I mean, once I started, you know, I was kind of secretly writing a novel while I was in college writing short stories primarily for my coursework. But um, after I finished, I continued working on my own on this novel, which I rewrote three times and will never see the light of day. And I, you know, but, um, you know, the one thing I learned that I understand now is the way you learn how to write is by writing. And so to write, to understand, to to write a failed novel is to learn a lot, and so I learned a lot about how to how to write narrative and how to write scenes and how to write how to develop characters and things that I used in journalism 
you know, all the time. And, you know, so I learned from my teachers and I learned from reading, but I also learned from just from writing. Mm-hmm. And then f- kind of flipping that, um, in terms of writing essays and memoir and the type of stuff you do now, um, how, how, like, what types of things do you fall back on as you're, you know, as, as having many years as a journalist? You know, what, what type of stuff that helps you in this new uh, writing that you do? Right, yeah, because what I'm doing now primarily is memoir type, type writing. The last two books in the book, the next book I'm going to be writing is, or that I'm working on is the same thing. And so, uh, the, I mean, the first thing that I've learned and that I've known for a long time is to always be reading well, especially while you're writing, um, but to be avoiding the things that are going to overtake you. Like, there are certain writers I can't read while I'm actively writing because I know I'll fall into, you know, I, I'll just want to imitate them. Like, I love David Foster Wallace and I've learned so much from him, but if I'm reading him, I'm, I, I'll tend to be writing in an imitation of him. You'll be um, putting footnotes everywhere and... No footnotes, but <laughs> definitely, like, sort of, over, I'm already hyper self-conscious and if I read him, he just encourages it. So right. I have to to pick something else but so that and but you know the other thing is you know I think some memoirists will tend to you, you know take the root word of memoir which is memory and think that that's their main tool and one thing that journalism taught me is that that's that's your most fallible tool mm-hmm. and so I do I do tons of research um, and you know I do um, you know the kind of research that I learned how to do doing journalism and once you start fact-checking your memory, the first thing is that there's these huge waves of disappointment because the story that you thought was so great and you remembered it so well mm-hmm. falls apart. Um, but then when you start rebuilding it through facts that you've gained from other places, you start to gain this different foundation that gives these layers that your memory is one of and then these other things add to it and they all build toward a meaning that you wouldn't have gotten if you were just relying on your own self. Right, right. Yeah, that happened. Um, I have an MFA uh, also, um, and that happened to me when I was doing my thesis because I was writing a memoir um, about when I had leukemia, and I had this certain this memory of exactly how everything happened in the hospital, and then I went and got my medical records, and nothing happened in the order that it had it was in my mind, and yeah. it really it changed everything. So. Um, like I, I tell my students all the time that um, writers, they, they reach um, stages of maturity and one of the key stages, and it happens in different ways and through different forms, but one of the key stages is when the writer reaches his or her stage of humility. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means having been humbled by something or finding something that, that something is bigger than you, um, that all of this talent that you have isn't really worth, isn't really what it's about or whatever. Um, and I think one of my experiences of that was learning um, that my storytelling self is is um, a, not a real self. You know, um, you know, there's there are times when a personal essay can't be researched. That there isn't there, that there isn't a way to to get other accounts of the same event. It's something that happened privately, and there isn't. There, there's no way to augment it, and I know I've written those essays, and those sometimes are my favorite pieces of writing. But I know they're probably not really true. Mm-hmm. Like I'm aware of their of of their weaknesses, but they're pure because they're not 
hindered by somebody else saying, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't happen that way. Right, right. If it, it, married people know this, like you, you'll be at a cocktail party and you'll start telling a story and your spouse will go, that, that didn't happen that way. It wasn't my birthday or whatever. And you realize that she's right. And then vice versa. Like, um, you know, that that's it's one of my favorite parts of being human. It's, right, right. I have a tendency to exaggerate numbers when I tell stories. Yeah. Not in my writing, but when I'm telling a story, you know, 12 becomes 25. Or, oh, yeah. You know, right? Because, I, mean, I love the book Angela's Ashes. And one of the things I love about it is this Irish storytelling thing where you kind of know when Frank McCourt is doing is putting on the storyteller mm-hmm. you know and letting that go um but you still trust him because I guess because you, you there's sort of a transparency of that voice mm-hmm. were there any um writers that um I, maybe you can list off the top of your head who you really you read a lot and maybe kind of helped shape you into who um, kind of the writer you, you are becoming or evolving into? Um, yeah, I mean, I can't really say, like, there are... It just evolves, mm-hmm. and, and and very often, like, the kind of writing I'm doing um, is the kind of reading I'm doing, and so I'm... So, you know, like, so like when I was writing this book, um, the book Pulphead by John Jeremiah Sullivan came out, um, which I loved, and I just it resonated with me in a whole lot of ways, and I learned a lot from it, and was influenced by it. Um, and in terms of essays, I mean, Joan Didion mm-hmm. is somebody who I adore and go back to, and David Foster Wallace is someone I'm, um, you know, again that like really resonates for me and that I admire. Um, and you know, but then when I was writing my previous book, All the Way Home, I was reading a lot of narrative memoir and so certain people and certain like Bill Bryson was somebody that I was reading a lot of then and um trying to think of who else. So well, definitely Dave Eggers. Mm-hmm. Um so it just it just is always changing and it's fun to be it's fun to be teaching now because I teach in an MFA program and I teach um specialized classes. So I will often pick like when I was working on this book I taught a class on the essay collection, and we had, and so I got to be reading and writing and talking about and interacting with people um, who were dealing with those kinds of books. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it just it just changes and evolves. Mm-hmm. When you when you were at the Beacon Journal, Chuck Klosterman was there too, right? Yeah. Did you? Um, he also kind of was doing a lot of writing on the site as well. Right. Did you two ever talk about writing and? Oh God, <laughs> that's all we did. <laughs> I mean, there, there, he's in a chapter of this book. We used to have he and I and another writer named Michael Weinreb. Mm-hmm. Um, we were like um, really close uh, drinking buddies, and we would go out. And uh, this was before any of us had had our first books published. Mm-hmm. And we would just be, we would just like talk about you know the, what we our ambitions and you know like sort of challenge each other in certain ways and yeah and it was a really good and foundational friendship for me um because it was you know you writers need communities and they need you know to feel like there are other people who have the same ambitions with them and then you go oh you know if he does it first then 
I need to catch up or, you know, things like that, that healthy kind of competition. So, yeah, and we're still good friends and we have the same agent now. And I mean, we have um, continued to be kind of writer friends in that way. Right. Knowing that all this was happening about 30 miles northeast of where I was working as a newspaper reporter makes me think I really should have tried to get into the Beacon Journal. At that oh, point yeah. You know, what would happen, this is part of that chapter in the book is, so Chuck and Michael and I were this three-headed, uh, like, drinking team. And when Michael went off to graduate school, then we, we actually um, had auditions for who would be the third member of the, the drinking slash writer team. And so um, so the next person passed the audition, and then he moved on to another job. And so so you could have been, yeah, you could have auditioned. I could have auditioned. I was yeah, a short drive away. I would have driven out every night. Yeah. So Yeah, it was a good thing. Well, anyways, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with uh, talk with me here on the podcast. It was fun. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking with David Giffels, author of The Hard Way on Purpose, Essays and Dispatches from the Rust Belt. We've linked to Giffels' website at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at gangrypodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.